Welcome, fellow brave believers. This is Kingdom Cast. I think this is episode, what, 21? Welcome, everyone. I'm glad you're here. I'm Sean Griffin, and you're watching the channel Kingdom in Context. So tonight, we're going to be talking about a very... Uh, it's not overlooked in churches, but it's definitely... I've never heard what I'm going to be presenting to you tonight. So it's a, it's a perspective that I hope will bless you as far as why this mention of this place called Armageddon and what's the point of a battle happening there uh, as opposed to anywhere else, you know? So I, we're going to go over some uh, unique concepts and how does, how, well, I won't spoil, I won't spoil the ending, but I think that we're going to find, hopefully you'll, as we go on this journey tonight, you'll find with me that there's a lot of, there's a lot of speciality to this particular area. And, um, and I think it's going to sound, I think it's going to, hopefully bless you. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just get right into it. But before we do guys, um, I want to thank everyone that's here in the chat. looks like we already have a, uh, quite a few people in there. Uh, welcome everybody. It looks like Rebecca Ringler. Welcome. AC Kelly J cover to cover with Jeremy Pierce, crystal C the great deceptions back. Welcome everyone. TX sunshine, James one twenty two, Shannon love two thousand Shannon low 2000. Miss Peggy D David Shearer. Pamela Santos, D Love, welcome everybody. And Jubion Kenobi's back, welcome. D Love, welcome. Uh, Pamela, I already said Pamela's name. Um, Kingdom Truth is back, welcome, brother. Elias Stewart, welcome, brother. Good to see you. Light of the Hill Ministries is back. And Bobby Moe is back. And Yah's daughter, welcome everybody. And 1000. 1,380 miles is back. Welcome. I think I said that right. 1380 or 1,380. Welcome, everyone. Electro, welcome. All right. So tonight, um, hopefully these these podcasts are, you know, hopefully they're beneficial to you. Um, I'm trying to get better at not getting so engrossed in my actual presentations that I forget to check the chat as I go. But as always, we do the Q&A at the end of it because I get excited whenever I start reviewing scripture. And so sometimes I forget to check the chat. So forgive me, guys. But um, I do look at the chat once once I'm done, usually at, at least once I'm done, if not before then, so that we can do a Q&A. So as always, hold your questions till we get to the end. And then that way we can do the Q&A. And when you do put your question in the chat, make sure it's in all caps. That way I can see it. And um, that way you have a better chance of getting it answered. Okay. Cause usually as we go, it spurs a lot of thoughts and questions from people. So, um, as always guys subscribe to this channel. If you haven't already subscribed, if you're watching, please do hit the subscription bell, hit the notification bell. Um, and then also go to our recommended channels, go to kingdom cast. I'm trying to build that secondary channel up to a thousand viewers at the minimum so that I can do this broadcast from that secondary channel. And so I need your help. If you're watching this, would you please go over to kingdom cast and actually click subscribe that's all you gotta do it's that easy it's actually on my recommended channels here on kingdom in context or you could just type kingdom cast in the search bar on youtube take you right there it's very simple very easy so if you would go subscribe to kingdom cast um looks like david Shearer is putting the the link in the in the chat thank you brother and then also subscribe to new jerusalem media that's another side venture we're we're working on and uh you'll you'll enjoy that too so it's biblical like a news from a unbiased and biblical perspective, basically. So I guess there, I guess there's biblical bias, but it's not, uh, the idea is that we're not, we're not promoting any agendas. You know, we're just trying to relay the news and how it might relate to our life of faith. So, all right, everybody, let's go ahead and let's look at some of these 
these uh, ideas about what's called the Valley of Jezreel in Scripture, also known as the Valley of Armageddon or Armageddon in an English transliteration. So let's look at it real quick. And as always, guys, if you're learning something, please share this video. Uh, that's how we grow and that's how we get around the censorship and the suppression uh, is by actually directly sharing it to your social medias or with other people. So let me go ahead and screen share. All right. So this beautiful valley, guys, what we're looking at right here, this beautiful, beautiful place. There's farmland. You see the mountains in the back from left to right. This picture is taken from a mountain. And can anyone just fun for fun? Can anyone guess which mountain this is taken from this picture as it overlooks the Valley of Armageddon? So I'll just give it a few seconds for everyone in the chat to throw an answer out if you think you know. So this is a unique place in history that this picture is being taken from. This is in the land of Israel, what we would call like a central area of Israel, um, or maybe more like central, central west. But this is the Valley of Armageddon, and this particular picture is being took. Yeah, Pamela Santos says it's from Mount Hermon. No, I apologize. I'm getting confused. Sorry, guys. I'm tired tonight. It's actually Mount Carmel, guys. It's Mount Carmel. So Mount Hermon is, is much further north, I think about 70 to 100 miles more north of this particular valley. And we're actually going to look at the map. So stick with us after a few more um, a few more explanations and slides of stuff. We're going to look at the map where this is located in Israel and why it's in, significant and important. But this is actually, this photo is from Mount Carmel. So you guys remember famous Elijah on Mount Carmel moment. So this was possibly their view. Okay. And what's interesting about this is what I'll, I'll be explaining. So let's go right into it. Um, Revelation 16, 16, and they gather them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And that's what we generically call Armageddon. Napoleon Bonaparte, he said the Valley of Armageddon is the most natural battleground of the whole earth. Do you guys know Napoleon was at Armageddon at one point? He fought a battle there. In fact, there's 34 battles that have been fought, according to historians. There's 34 battles that have been fought in the Valley of Jezreel, which is the Valley of Armageddon. One of the, I'm just going to highlight a couple of those 34 to give you some perspective on history. Pharaoh Thutmose III fought the Canaanites there around 1472 BC. And this is the battle that's possibly mentioned in Jubilees 46.9. While the children of Israel were still in the land of Goshen, there was a change of power. And then the Canaanites won that battle against Pharaoh Thutmose. And then he started oppressing the Israelites. So did you guys know that a Canaanite king was Pharaoh during the time of Israelite oppression? It's crazy, huh? Guys, remember, the word Pharaoh is just a name for a king. But each king, that I mean, Egypt was controlled by different people over time. And the Canaanites controlled it for a while. The Greeks controlled Egypt for a while. So you could have a Greek ruler who's a Pharaoh. So it's not that. It's just a title. The word Pharaoh is like the word for king. Okay? But so this is a... Did you guys know that they actually fought their battle in the Valley of Armageddon? And you can see this um, is, is documented by different types of history, as well as being mentioned, uh, the battle itself being mentioned as, as the uh, 
uh, Pharaoh went to make war against the, the king of Canaan um, in Jubilees 46.9. So also we've got Deborah and Barak versus Sisera. This took place in the Valley of Jezreel, also the Valley of Armageddon. Judges chapter 5, famous battle, guys, right? How about Saul versus the Philistines? This is 1 Samuel 31. Saul dies on Mount Geboa. I'm going to show you later where that is. It's in the southeastern corner of the Valley of Jezreel. But they actually carried his, uh, that's where he fled to, to, to die on the mountaintop. But they had to, they were fighting in the actual Valley of Armageddon. Another significant battle was the Rehoboam of Judah, right? This is Solomon's son. He fought Pharaoh Shishak. This is listed in 2 Chronicles 12. Um, Pharaoh Shishak actually invaded. It wasn't much of a fight, to be honest, but he invaded into the Valley of, of Jezreel in an attempt to come down to Jerusalem, and he filled the valley, as it says in those passages, with uh, um, Ethiopians and Egyptians and uh, I think Nubians and uh, Lutims, just mentioning off different people groups from Africa that he brought up an army with him. And it says it was men without number filled the valley. That's a big deal, right? So, yeah, Texas, TX Sunshine, you're, yeah, you're welcome to take notes. I mean, you're welcome to. But the cool thing about me doing this video is that you can always just rewind it and go back and watch again. So it's like I'm creating the, the video note for you. So hopefully it's, it's helpful. You can watch these over and over if you like. Yes, in Kingdom Truth, or this is why the new Pharaoh didn't know who Joseph was. He was not an Egyptian. So this this battle up here that took place in Jubilees 46.9, that's why he didn't know who Joseph was. He had have your respect for Joseph. And so he came he comes in and starts oppressing the Israelites in Goshen. So yeah, it's it's just, just it all point it all fits together when you start knowing, you know, researching the history. Um <laughs> Did you guys know that? Let me go back to the the one I was talking about here, though, with uh, Rehoboam, just right after the days of Solomon, with Rehoboam of Judah being uh, overrun and, and taken by Pharaoh of Shishak. Did you guys know they found, I think it was 1941, there was an archaeological expedition to the land of Goshen, and they actually found like uh, entire temples that were covered in mud that were considered temple cities, temples to Isis and Osiris and um, some of the other gods of ancient Egypt. And supposedly they found the, the sarcophagus uh, or the, the tomb of Shishak. And it's the one that they accredit to this particular Shishak of Second Chronicles 12. So guys, if you didn't know, there is a ton of validated archaeological history about the events in your Bible. But if any of you went to modern college in the United States, you would think that it was just a fictitious fable book that has no validation whatsoever because <laughs> there's a lot of people that hate the Bible that are that have become professors in colleges in this country. So therefore, it just takes digging for the information, but it's out there. It's truly out. There's a ton of uh, archaeological validation for uh, the stories and the events in the Bible. So let's keep going here. Like Josiah of Judah versus Pharaoh Necho in 2 Kings 23. So this also happened in the Valley of Armageddon. Uh, unfortunately, Josiah lost, and he's uh, he perished in that battle. If we skip forward, 
So we, we kind of go from, I'm just, again, I'm hitting the highlights. There's a lot more battles fought here. Cause as Napoleon said, it's like the best place to have a battle on the earth, but I'm just hitting some of the highlights of these 34 battles that are documented in history. And another one we skip from the era of second Kings, which would be about 700 BC. And we go up to um, the 12th century AD, right? So about 1900 years later, you've got Saladin uh, fighting Richard the Lionheart. If the part of the crusades, this happened in the 12th century AD. So can you imagine? It's crazy. Uh, Kelly J is mentioning a documentary. If you guys haven't seen this, it is a good documentary. It's, it actually, it's called patterns of evidence. And I think, I think that's the one that my wife and I watched on our first date because we're nerds like that. So we do, you know, we don't do Netflix and chill. We do documentary and chill. Well, that, that still could sound bad. It's more like documentary and let's talk about the Bible, but especially cause it's a, it's a, it's supposedly patterns of evidence is like a documentary that helps you validate the historical timeline of the Bible. So it's really well done. Check it out. If you haven't already seen it, uh, let me see here. Okay. So the 14th century, 200 years later, after the crusades, we have the Egyptian Mamluks, which is like a, um, a group of Islamists that were in Egypt and they were fighting the Mongols that had come down from Asia. So this also happens in the Battle of Armageddon, right? So yeah, TD Riha, we are word nerds, and that's that's how we got together. The Father brought us together because we love scripture and history and we like to read. And so it just it's a beautiful match. And I'm grateful every day for the beautiful gift he has given me as my wife. And so um, yes, Shannon, Shannon Low 2000, you're right. It's I mean that that particular place there's been a lot a lot of blood and this is <laughs> this no i i think that it's not even going to compare to what we're going to see in the future which i'll go over in just a minute but yeah there's a, a battle between the, the mamluks and the mongols in the 14th century we also have got napoleon like i said before napoleon and french army come against the ottomans in uh, 1799 which is technically the 18th century bleeding into the 19th century so you have uh, one of Napoleon's wars, the Napoleonic wars happening in Israel, in the Valley of Armageddon, guys. Uh, you also have General Allenby, part of the British Empire in part of World War I in 1918, fighting the Ottoman Turks in the Valley of Armageddon. Did you guys know that part of World War I was fought in the Valley of Armageddon? It's crazy. It's crazy. And then skipping forward to one that's not recorded in history because it hasn't happened yet but what we believe in faith that will happen is that king yeshua is going to fight the beast and the ten kings in the valley of armageddon and i couldn't find a real good picture for the beast so i didn't put one up there but um because i don't think it's all those amalgamation of animals that we see from different types of church prophecy videos so i personally think as i've shown it's a polyon and so but either way, it's it was hard to find a picture with Apollyon and the Ten Kings, so I just decided to leave it blank. It's all good. Um, all I care to think about anyway is the return of Yeshua. So basically, those are huge battles, but let's look at what's unique about this particular valley. And we're going to go back to the last one, which is this battle of Yeshua and the Beast and the Ten Kings. We're going to cover that too, but before we get there, let's let's look at the valley and look at some of the significance therein and why it's you know, mentioned as a big deal in the Bible. Uh, it's look how beautiful it is, guys. Look how massive 
it is. So this is still from Mount Carmel. This is, as you can see on the left-hand side, there's like a stone wall there. This is part of a tourist observatory that looks out over the Valley of Jezreel. Um, and you can see all around it are different mountains because this whole place is like, it's very expansive, very large, right? So that's why you could have men without number, as it's talked about in Second Chronicles uh, 12, I think it's one through six, where it talks about how Shishak came with a whole bunch of people to, to try to battle uh, Rehoboam. And it was like men without number filled the valley. Can you imagine, guys? Um, but we also have on Mount Carmel, which overlooks this valley, and then later uses this valley, we have the story of 1 Kings 18 with Elijah on Mount Carmel. So this is 1 Kings 18, 37 through 40. It says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their back, their excuse me, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they escaped them. Excuse me. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the river Kishon and slew them there. All right. So 400 prophets of Baal, I think it's like 450 actually, uh, are taken down to the river Kishon by the servants of Elijah to be killed because this was a battle, even though it doesn't happen in a traditional way. It's not two armies throwing spears at each other or arrows or mortar rounds or something like that, right? Or slingshots. But it was a religious battle to see whose God would show up first. And then when the God of Israel, who's the only true God, did show up with fire from heaven to consume the offering, that basically means they won the battle. So this is why they take the priests of the fake religion that worship Baal and they kill them all. But here's where they killed them all. Can you guys see this? It's the Kishon River just here southeast as you go down the mountain of Carmel. And it's right there. It's in the Valley of Jezreel. How interesting is that, huh? So the false prophets of Baal. You guys know who Baal is? You guys ever know that? Uh, of course, go, go watch my Apollyon video. I, I try to show the connection how Baal is this this Nimrod character that is returning as Apollyon. And he and the false prophet are destroyed by Yeshua and the angels at the second coming. So Elijah destroys the false prophets of Nimrod slash Apollyon slash Baal in this same area. Isn't that cool? So further, if we go further, this what's it? Also unique about Elijah and Mount Carmel get this, is that fire came down from heaven. So that's a unique qualifier. So fire comes down from heaven, consumes the offering, uh, signifying the defeat of Baal and his false prophets. Okay. And so therefore the the control that the people's hearts are turned back to the Lord because of this event. So there's repentance that happens and the, how do I say this? Yahweh is reinstated for a, for a moment as the actual, you know, Lord of Israel in the minds of the people. So we see all of this symbology fulfilled at the second coming, all of it. 
Zechariah 14, 12 through 13. It says, Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. They will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted up against the hand of another. One second, guys. So if we keep going about the same idea, the same moment in time, Job 4.9 mentions the idea as well as, as a prophetic statement. They shall perish by the command of the Lord and shall be utterly consumed by the breath of his wrath. We also see in Isaiah 30, 27 through 28, behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place, burning in his anger and dense in it is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation. His tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent, which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the people, the bridle, which leads to ruin. And then in 2nd Ezra 13, 1 through 11, we see the same thing about the return of Christ coming with fire, right? Verses 1 through 11, and it came to pass after seven days, I dreamed a dream by night, and lo, there arose a wind from the sea that moved all the waters thereof. And I beheld, and lo, that man waxed strong with the thousands of heaven. And when he turned his countenance to look, all the things trembled that were seen under him. And whensoever the voice went out from his mouth, all they burned that heard his voice, like as the earth fails when it feels the fire. And after this I beheld, and lo, there was gathered together a multitude of men out of number from the four winds of the heaven to subdue the man that came up out of the sea. But I beheld, and lo, he had graved himself a great mountain that's carved out and flew up upon it. But I would have seen the region or place from where the, where the hill was cut, cut out, and I could not. After this I beheld, and lo, all they which were gathered together to subdue him were sore afraid and yet durst fight. And lo, as he saw the violence of the multitude they, that came, he neither lifted up his hand nor held sword nor any instrument of war, but only I saw that he sent out of his mouth as if it had been a blast of fire, and out of his, out of his lips a flaming breath. Out of his tongue he cast out sparks and tempests, and they were all mixed together, the blast of fire, the flaming breath, the great tempest, and fell with violence upon the multitude which was prepared to fight. And burned them up every one, so that upon a sudden of an innumerable multitude, nothing was to be perceived, but only dust and the smell of smoke. When I saw this, I was afraid. So, this is the just the the wrath of the lamb, guys. This is <laughs> this is why and why is it happening specifically over the battle of over the valley of Jezreel, which is called the Valley of Armageddon? It's because. That's where they're gathered to. Revelation 16, 13 through 16. I saw coming up out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Guys, that, that's an idiomatic phrase in scripture, meaning keeps the commandments. So that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which is in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So this is what we read from Zechariah 14, right? They're they rot in their place while they stand. This is where we read from Second Ezra 13, the tempest, the fire, the smoke, it destroys the innumerable crowd of people that comes up against the man. Um, so this is why, because in Revelation 16, uh, unclean spirits deceive the kings of the earth, and they are bringing all their peoples as much as they can to this place. 
this place, this massive valley that supposedly from a military, a very successful military commander, Napoleon, he says it's it's one of the best places on the earth to have a battle. And all the enemies of Christ are going to be drawn there on the day of the Lord. And it is going to be the best place to have the battle because he's going to destroy them all. Right? What's unique about this, guys? Can y'all see this? What's can anyone tell me what would be significant about Nazareth being literally right here at the northern part of this valley? Guys, this is this is where Yeshua grew up. Our king, the one that's coming back to destroy all the armies that are gathered together in in literally his backyard. This is this is his stomping ground, guys. All pun intended. This is his stomping ground from the past and will be in the future. Our Messiah grew up. You ever wondered why he may have grew up in Nazareth? This is a significant place. Now, as I've talked about before, on the day of the Lord, when he comes back, he's going to come back and he's going through a, long, a lot of places. He and the angels are going to go through and take out the wicked and a lot of different areas because the New Jerusalem is going to sit down from the Euphrates to the Nile. But this particular area has a lot of focus on it in scriptures because it's a part of him going uh, to clear out the land as well. So how fitting, how fitting he grew up in this area. You know, it's pretty amazing. And what's, so that's basically it guys. Um, hopefully this was something that benefited you. If you didn't already understand why the armies of the world are drawn to Israel, because think about it, you'd be like, well, why would it matter if they're drawn to Israel? They can just, you know, you've got, you know, a ridiculous amount of armies between like India and all the Southeast Asian countries and China and Russia. Like, why would they want to come all the way over to Israel? Because guys, that's where the King is coming down, right? Zechariah 14 talks about it. He's going to set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. That's where the King's going to be coming down. And all of his angels are coming down on that same area to fight. Why? Because that's the area. Matthew 13, 49 through 51 explains to us that they have to separate the wicked from the righteous. They have to cordon off this promised area that's the promised inheritance geographical area of the covenant where the new Jerusalem is going to set down. And this valley is smack dab in the middle of it, and it's the best place for all these armies to assemble to try to fight the king and the angels that are coming out of the sky that are coming through the firmament on the day of the Lord. So imagine being... In this, imagine being in, like, as we read from 2nd 13 and Zechariah 14, it, that, you know, also in Isaiah chapter 30, 27 and 28, where it says that the people that are gathered together, they're going to turn on each other because they become afraid. Why? Because they're seeing the Messiah and angels coming out of the sky, and it's a big deal, right? I don't know. I don't know what they're fooled to think what, to be drawn there if they truly think they're coming to fight. Jesus Christ, or if they think they're coming to fight aliens that are invading, like who knows what lie the deception will be to draw the armies there. But I personally think they're going to be drawn there to fight each other through like a World War III kind of concept. But then he comes down and they end up trying to fight him and get destroyed all in the process. But that's just, you know, a speculation. I can't really prove that. But the point is, it's can you imagine being on the ground and you look up and you see, you know, 
you know, innumerable amounts of angels that you can't imagine coming down. You literally see the, it's a darkened day as Zephaniah one talks about this in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, the sun is, is darkened. The moon looks like blood and there, you know, the cloud coverage is darkened everything. Anyway, um, you start to see there's no, like there's hardly any light on the earth. This firmament starts to open up and, and the lights, the brightness of it come of his coming second Thessalonians two, right? Verses six and seven and eight that he's going to come back with this amazing light of life, right? The light of immortality, uh, his eyes like fire, right? He's going to come back with all these beautiful glorified angels that are coming down to fight, which is the only light these people will be able to see for the most part. And Oh, by the way, the stars are falling to the ground. So there's a lot going on in this moment from this perspective of whoever's, you know, a part of these armies in the Valley of Armageddon, when this is about to happen, that's going to shake them to their boots, right? They're, they're not going to be able, which is why they end up turning on each other. I would imagine many of them because they're trying to actually leave and there's, and they're scared and they're running, but they end up trying to fight each other. And then it's just, it's just a slaughter as we know. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a bad day. So just like you have in first Kings 18, where you have the nation of Israel in this geographical area is being taken over by Baal. That's the way it is today, guys. If, if you don't know the political structure of Zionism and who they actually worship, then I highly encourage you to do your homework because it's the same as Elijah was facing back in his day. And what turned the tide? What changed the hearts of the average people? This fire comes down from heaven. And that's what's going to happen on the day of the Lord too, to destroy the enemy. So this is where there's other passages. I didn't want to make this too long tonight, but there's other passages where it even talks about just like in a uh, comparison fashion with first Kings 18 and the sacrifice that Elijah had made that the father dropped the fire down on. It says on the day of the Lord that um, the father has prepared a great slaughter. I think it's actually in Ezekiel 39, but it says that, you know, that Yahweh has prepared a great, a great slaughter. And that's what it is, is the, you know, it's, it's metaphoric, right? He, he doesn't accept human sacrifice. It's definitely not some unclean, unbelieving person, right? That's a, uh, that's a part of the beast army. Like it's not, I'm just saying the metaphor is there, right? That, that something that's metaphorically called a great slaughter or a sacrifice has been gathered together in the Valley of Armageddon. Fire comes down just like in the days of Elijah when Yeshua returns. And so it's, um, it's just a huge, huge thing. Yes. The King is coming, James Henry. That's, that's what we are waiting for. That's why we endure to the end. And uh, hopefully we'll all take part in the resurrection. Everyone listening and watching this. So you'll have the best perspective of watching him come. You're not going to be watching him from the perspective of if, if someone trying to fight against him at the Valley of Armageddon, right? You're going to be watching him from the perspective of your own personal angel that's escorting you to the New Jerusalem, as Isaiah 26, 19 through 21 explains. This is where First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we meet him in the air at his coming. We've been resurrected. We have our angels escorting us up to our rooms to hide away from the wrath of the Lamb. We're going to go up to the New Jerusalem. He's coming down with the warrior angels, and that is how we meet him in the air. So I can only imagine our perspective is we will see him coming with our angelic escort next to us, and then we see him passing us as he goes down to the battle, and there's there's chaos happening below us, and he's going to go sort it all out for us, right? And then, so yeah, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful moment in my mind. I, I just, uh, hopefully other people can see it like that too, but 
Looks like Callie J is asking, do you think World War III and the Day of the Lord go hand in hand? I guess I always thought World War III would come first and then the 42 months of tribulation. I get this theory from Albert Pikes. Uh, it's very possible. I know I mentioned that earlier. I was saying, you know, it could be World War III, that why they're all coming to fight each other. And, and it could not be, right? But it could just be that the uh, the beast doesn't have power over all the people like he wants to. Uh, he can't control all of you know, the, all of the armies of the world. Now we know he has 10 Kings under his power and they give him their power to the beast for one hour as revelation talks about, but that's not all the armies of the world. So there's a caveats there. There's other scriptures that talk about how some nations did not go to fight on the day of the Lord. And so they're spared from wrath. And that's, um, so those nations have armies too, you know what I'm saying? So who knows? I don't know who those exactly are. It could be world war three as the day of the Lord. It could be not. It could be World War III as, a, as another skirmish filled with misdirection and attempt to set up the kingdom of the beast, who would then rule for 42 months, as we as you put down. Uh, so it's just, it's in, in the light of actually determining what's going to be called World War III. I apologize. I don't have a definitive answer for you. Let's see if I can find another question real quick. Yes, Karen C. This is a favorite verse of mine because it's talking about the what we just read from uh, Isaiah 30, 27, 28, where he shifts the nations like a sieve. It's because this massive earthquake that happens um, on the great day of slaughter when all the towers fall. And uh, it's, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to, it's reshaping the land. Um, and I think it's going to be felt worldwide as Revelation 16, 18 talks about. It's a, it's a earthquake so great. All the nations of all the cities, excuse me, all the cities of all the nations fall and are destroyed because this earthquake is so massive. Mountains are falling into their valleys and valleys are being raised up. It's a, a topographical shifting and, and change of, of uh, the, the actual landscape, specifically in this area between the Euphrates and the Nile, so the New Jerusalem can set down. That's what they're doing is it's preparing a flat base foundation for a massive square city to sit down. And that's why the angels, after the earthquake, the angels go through and burn everything with fire because they're preparing the foundation like you would to purify it. So this is it's all, it all works together. But yeah, that's a great verse to let you know that all the towers will fall. I would imagine that's all the skyscrapers as well as any other high places, all the obelisks, all that kind of stuff. It's all going to fall. Uh, rainstorm is asking 42 months. Where does the Bible say that? Revelation 11, uh, Revelation 13 versus uh, Revelation 13. We'll go to it real quick. I'll pull this over for everyone to see. One second. So this is 42 months, right? This is the beast. And he's... It says there was given to him a mouth speaking errant words of blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name. That's his authority and his tabernacle. That's not the one on the ground, guys. That's the one in heaven, the one that Yeshua went to go minister in Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. So even he knows there's a tabernacle in heaven with the law being done. <laughs> right? If we could just get our fellow believers on the earth today to catch up to this information. Um, and then basically in verse 7 and 8 is where it gets, you know, where it, it takes a lot of courage to read these verses and believe our father is just 
right? Because it says it was also given to him, that's the, the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And the authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world, the book of life of the lamb has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here's perseverance and faith of the saints. So as we talked about last night, guys, what is this perseverance idea? We're enduring to the end. What is this faith idea, right? It's it's walking out your belief with your actions, right? So that's how we endure to the end. And this is our job to, you know, in spite of any persecution during this 42 months, just stay steadfast that we believe he's coming back. He's going to take care of all of it. And uh, we just try to share that that hope with everyone around us if we can. Um, all right. Let's see if I can see another question. TD Reha is asking, what do you think for timing? I don't know what timing you're mentioning. I don't know if you're asking about it. Just maybe, could you clarify that question? I don't, we've already talked about quite a few different things in relation to the Valley of Armageddon. So just, just go ahead and drop another question to kind of clarify that if you would. All right. James 122 is asking, could believers in a second exodus potentially be in danger? Should they begin to migrate to this area? Oh, wait, wait. Not, not should, should they begin to migrate to this area? Um, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, danger is relative, but yes, you're basically walking into the, the uh, land area that's already controlled by people that hate Yeshua, and the beast will definitely reign over this area. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's why we try to explain the second exist is we've, we've done four different videos on it in our milk and meat series. So go check that out under the playlist milk and meat. And we did, I think four different episodes on, on the second exodus and breaking it down from scripture, break down the theory versus the first resurrection. And we show how the second exodus is not a thing, right? It's just what it's a name that people have given the first resurrection, but they're not calling it the first resurrection. They're calling it the second exodus. So yeah, it's one of those conversations that not a lot of people like to hear in the Torah observant world, but that's, that's the reality of it. And that's why one of my very first videos when I started this channel was two part series on the first resurrection to try to hopefully share the truth with people to help you have your faith in what the scriptures say, as opposed to putting your faith in something the scriptures don't say, and then finding yourself in a hot spot as a result, right? In Romans 8, Paul calls the resurrection our blessed hope, not the second exodus, the resurrection. So, and there, there's only one regathering, guys, at the end of days, and it's the first resurrection. Um, Tiraha, I think you're trying to clarify uh, timing, like on feast, possibly. You're, I don't, I don't, could you, I'm sorry, I apologize. I don't know what you're asking about. Could you put the subject, the timing of what? I don't, I apologize. I'm not sure what you're asking about the timing of. Uh, yeah, David Cheers throwing some of the links in the in the chat for us, guys, for our Milk and Meat Second Exodus series. If you guys want to go check that out, appreciate you, David Cheer. And then also the First Resurrection series he's putting in there. So go check those out, guys. All right, Kingdom Truther is asking, could you do a podcast on the book of Zechariah, in particular chapter 5 and 6, The Flying Scroll, The Woman in the Basket? Uh, sure. Sure. I mean, in the future, I mean, I can put it down as something to, to look at and 
and uh, and explain a little bit more in depth. I mean, I'll be honest with you, brother. It's uh, it's not. I I think it's it, when we look at the context of those passages, it's pretty it's pretty simple. But people don't really look at the context of stuff. You know, they just they hear a couple verses quoted from one chapter, and then they're like, "Oh man, that's a theory." And it's not. It doesn't have to be a theory if we just like read the whole chapter and the chapter before it. You know, but this is yeah. I'll be glad to I'll be glad to address um, different things like that in the future. So good suggestion, brother. All right. Light of the Hill Ministries is saying, I always thought World War III was Desert Storm, and we are on World War Four or Five. Yeah, who knows how who gets to who gets to determine, right? Three, four, and five, unless it's simply a scale of escalation. And that's, you know, I think a lot of people think that World War Three is probably going to be more devastating, more, you know, larger than World War II was. And they considered World War II, uh, they give it the terminology of total war, meaning that it wasn't just battles of soldiers from different countries fighting each other it was countries bombing and fighting civilians and this is where the you know <laughs> the amalekites and the canaanites that rule the world man like they're they're some evil evil people and that's the kind of thing they want to introduce into modern civilized war, world for excuse me warfare is this idea of getting away from what we see during the times of Napoleon, where you just had the French army versus, you know, the Ottomans and they would meet off in a field and fight each other. And then whoever lost that nation would have to abide by the rules of the victor. Now they just want to have, you know, the U S firebombing Dresden for a week. And, uh, which is a, a civilian city in Germany. Now there may be some world war two veterans watching this guys. My grandfather was in world war two. He was in a, on a battleship in the, in the Pacific. And, uh, you know, they, they were firebombing Tokyo for what, almost a month, you know, Tokyo. I, I don't know if they had an arm. What he was told was that every person in, in Japan was given a gun and a bullet if they had it. And if not, they're given a sharpened stick and they were going to meet the allied forces when they arrived. Cause they were preparing an allied invasion. Like we did in Normandy and France. Um, they were preparing something similar to that to to the mainland Japan, and uh, he was a part of that that crew. That was they were all joining forces. He said they they stopped you know in the ocean and another a boat transport boat rendezvoused with them and a bunch of Marines got on their boat on their ship. But then the the uh, nuclear bomb uh, uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima event happened and the war changed dramatically and so he didn't have to to actually invade mainland Japan. And that's that's why I'm here today. I probably wouldn't have been born had he had we actually invaded mainland Japan. But so basically, um, he was saying like everyone in that nation was was willing to to come and fight any of the Allied forces that showed up on their beaches, man, woman, child, everybody, old people, everybody. So World War II has had conditioned all these nations to to think that the nations that were being drawn into this thing. To think that you know everybody could be a, a civil, every civilian could be a soldier, basically. You know, so it's how do you escalate that into World War Three? That's where you have the scare of the whole atomic age, right, with the nuclear weapons and everything. Some people don't even believe the nuclear weapons are real, and they say there's a lot of science to it, and there was a lot of cover up, and the Manhattan Project was all decompartmentalized, and 
uh, excuse me, it was all compartmentalized. And so there's a lot of conspiracy around the idea of are atomic weapons truly real because Nagasaki, it's only been 60 years and it's already grown back. <laughs> Everything's fine. Um, there's no, you know, extenuating radiation there. And supposedly it was supposed to be uninhabitable for a thousand years. So there's some interesting things to consider when, when you're looking into the, you know, the theories of whether uh, nuclear weapons are truly real or not. And unless, unless it's just another type of large bomb that they're passing off as a nuclear weapon, but doesn't have the, the radioactive fallout, like they've been trying to scare the world with, uh, you know, in the parameters of a world war three. Uh, and most of us watching have grew up with that mentality. You know, the cold war, America and Russia are going to destroy each other with nuclear thermonuclear war. Right. So like, it, it's just depends on, what the truth is I, there's no way to tell there's no way to tell Let's see if i can find another question real quick karen c is asking is the description of battle in daniel 11 day of the lord battle in your opinion uh well daniel 11 let's we'll go there real quick and we'll take a look at it i don't have that one memorized so it is there's a lot going on in the battle of Daniel 11. Uh, do you have a specific verse, Karen C., that you're thinking of? Um, with kings of the north and kings of the south, there's a lot going on there. Um, so, yeah, if you have a specific verse you're thinking of, but I'm not sure. Um, I apologize. I'm not sure, honestly. But just, yeah, go ahead and drop that as an addition. We'll try taking a look at it. Okay, let's see. Oh, okay. Thank you, T.D. Raha. So she's asking, the day that Yeshua returns, is it possibly a feast day? And this is what we've talked about on our kingdom portions, where my wife and I does the Torah portion. Um, episode that we or the saturday tour portions that we did for a year that we've talked about this a lot where it was um passover i mean that's that is the big passover and in fact it's even in isaiah um i'm going blank but it is the fulfillment the ultimate fulfillment of passover is when the wrath of god is literally passing over us because we're resurrected and we're going to the new jerusalem to be hidden away in our rooms while the indignation of the Lord, which is the wrath of the Lamb, will come down to rat out the wicked. So that is, it's like the ultimate Passover because we're the ones getting the wrath passed over us, right? We're being protected and saved. And so, yes, we fully believe that Passover is the the marker for the return of the Lord. Um, does anyone know the day or the hour? That's where it gets fun because of the calendars have been changed so much. This is why we don't make a big deal about the calendar because to me, it'd be perfect for the enemy to get the calendars confused over all this time. So no one truly knows what the real date is and you'll never know the exact day to expect Yeshua. See what I mean? So even all of us believers who in the last days come to understanding the law of God is relevant to our lives and start keeping the law in the last days, as uh, Enoch 108.1 says in Deuteronomy chapter 31 through 4, even in that, we still don't know what day starts the first day of the year. So then therefore 14, 15 days later, we can know when the Passover is happening. So we still are playing guesswork with these calendars, which is why everyone's always debating about them all the time. 
so we're still not going to know the day or the hour, right? So I think it's, um, you know, it's it's something to do with Passover. Is it the exact day of Passover? I don't know. I think it's something to do with that, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover as that time period will be when the, the second coming happens. So, all right, let me see if I can find another quick question. What time is it? 9.55. Yes, um, I think that you're uh, lying within us. I think you're talking about what I was just the, the verse I was trying to find. Let me go here and read that because I think that's the one. Jeremiah has been kind of chopped up um, by the Masoretic. So if we go to the Septuagint, and what I mean by chopped up is they've taken parts and rearranged them. But uh, if we go to the Septuagint real quick, if I can find it. Uh, the line within us is it is it thirty two eight and not thirty eight eight? I'm trying to see here. I'm not even seeing it. If you've got the if you've got the verse, the line within us, would you put that in the chat? Um, Cause I'm not, I, I know the verse you're talking about and I can't remember. It's not in, in the Septuagint and the Britons that I'm looking at as Jeremiah 38, eight. Anyway. All right. Sorry guys. I'm just trying to find it. You guys get to do, you guys get to watch live Bible study here. It's uh it's not the most entertaining. Sorry. So yeah, if you find that brother, put that in the chat, will you? Because I, it's, it's not showing thirty-eight eight in mine. Um, hmm. But it's a great verse. All right, we have another uh, Nick McPherson or McPherson is asking, "What are your thoughts on the two witnesses? Who are they? And wow, how amazing they will be for Abba's plan to frustrate the wicked. Love your thoroughness. I, I appreciate it, brother. Thanks for the kind words, man. Um, thoughts on the two witnesses? I don't know who they are. I apologize. I've already done videos explaining that it's not Enoch. <laughs> um, I'm going to do a video on Elijah in the future. I don't believe it's Elijah, and I think it's just I think it, it's it's what we're seeing. I mean, if I could, if it's not angels, which there's some. There's some inclination there that it could actually be angels, but it also doesn't have to be. And so if it is mortal humans, guys, think about what's happening in the current day is we have a return of people coming back to keeping the law in the last days, a return of people to understanding the, uh, the, the commandments of God that is the behavior of Jesus that we're discipling after. Well, guys, what hap all the prophets in the Old Testament kept the law of God. This is what gave them the trust within the Lord for him to actually, you know, allow this fun stuff to flow through them for them to do all these miracles and these crazy things that we see Elijah and Elisha and Yeshua doing. See what I'm saying? Remember, as I've tried to, uh, to explain um, on so many different videos that, that, that when we see Yeshua walking around healing people, he's keeping the law of God. He's reprimanding the Pharisees for being 
bad teachers, hypocritical bad teachers, laying burdens on the people, teaching them something else, teaching them Talmudic Judaism, which is not the Torah. They were teaching the traditions from Talmudic Judaism. The people, the average people that Yeshua was ministering to in the Gospels did not know the law of God. Even the teachers, he's reprimanding Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, because he doesn't know the covenant's promise of the resurrection, which is summed up and explained in great detail in the law of God. So the whole concept of Yeshua doing the law of God perfectly and the power he receives from the Spirit as a result of that allows him to go and do amazing healing and miracles as the ultimate prophet. Just like we see prophets of old who are following the law of God, like Elijah, who can do amazing miracles and stuff. So if we have a return of people in this modern day and age who are doing the law of God with a heart of love and sincerity and dedication to the Father, it's very possible the two witnesses could just be two dudes. Just two modern guys alive at that time who the Father trusts with these things to do miracles through them because they've shown themselves faithful by emulating his behavior. Ephesians 1.5, do the, emulate the behavior of God, right? So they've done this because now they have the awareness that to be a believer in Christ means that you are to do his behavior, which was keep the commandments, and, and that's what we're all striving to learn and do now in this generation, and that's only going to perpetuate further as we have children. And this, and this, you know, this is the this is the, the prophecy that I mentioned: the people coming back to the law in the last days. So it could just be two dudes, just like Elijah was just a dude before he got the mantle of the prophet, and then the father did amazing things through him. You see what I'm saying? So it doesn't have to be this wild, fantastical idea of who these two witnesses are. It, it really all centers around the behavior of how they're able to do the things they're doing, and that's because. If they are considered a great prophet that's able to do the same works like Moses and Elijah, who were prophets, well, that means they have to be doing the behavior of Moses and Elijah, which was to keep the commandments. You see what I'm saying? Um, David Shearer, I think you're trying to put up this verse, but it's not the verse that is being referred to. It's literally a verse that's, uh, man, I really apologize. I, I I thought I had this uh, this this down, but it's literally a verse in Jeremiah that says it's. I think it's thirty one eight, maybe maybe it's Jeremiah thirty one eight, but it's in the Septuagint. It says that um, it's the Passover, basically, that he comes back. Um, he, he'll return to Israel on the Passover. Yeah, here it is. I'll I'll put this on screen. It's thirty one eight. Let me take this off real quick. All right, guys, you see this. So it says, Behold, I bring them from the north. I will gather them from the end of the earth to the feast of the Passover. This is in the, this whole concept here is he's talking about the resurrection on the day of the Lord. And the people shall beget a great multitude, and they shall return here. So this is in the Septuagint. Jeremiah 31 8 literally says the day of the Lord concept, the great resurrection, the regathering from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. He's gathering everyone from under the heaven where they've been scattered for the feast of the Passover. So that's why I think that season is when Yeshua returns. All right, looking for a couple of other questions. Looks like, hey, Joe, good to see you, brother. Joe Bugle is asking, Mount Matthew 24, 30, sign of the Son of Man equals the New Jerusalem? Question mark. Will the underside of the city be visible for several days or so as Yeshua comes to do battle at Armageddon? 
is this the same sign as eleven as Isaiah eleven twelve? So I know what Matthew twenty four is uh, as far as what it says. Let's look at Isaiah eleven twelve for those watching and listening, so they can have an idea of what you may be referencing. Let me pull this up on screen. We'll go to Isaiah eleven twelve. It says he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will really gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners. We we're just talking about this passage, right? And so I, I actually would agree with you in both accounts. The sign of the standard of the nations, the Son of Man, is going to be Yeshua. You know, Re Revelation 1, 7, every eye will see him and coming in the clouds. It will be Yeshua and the angels returning. That's that's a huge sign. Will they be able to see the new Jerusalem actually descending because the ferment's rolling back like a scroll to make way for it to come down through? Um, yes, yes. They're going to see. I don't know what the underside might look like, um, but I don't know if the foundation stones are see-through and it just looks like an incredible variety of colors, almost like a rainbow that's coming down. But um, it definitely, I believe they'll be able to see it. And the reason I believe that is because of Psalm chapter, I think it's chapter 49 or 48. Yeah, it's 48 here. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to great is the Lord, greatly to, to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth in Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold for lo, the kings assemble themselves together. They passed it by together. This is what we were talking about tonight, the Valley of Armageddon. They saw it and then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen, is in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. So these first eight verses in Psalm 48, literally seen Mount Zion, that is the city of the great king. This is the new Jerusalem. And why? The kings assemble themselves in the valley of Armageddon. They look up to see Yeshua and, and the angels returning. And behind those warrior angels is this massive continent-sized, beautiful, majestic kingdom of heaven city called the New Jerusalem, also called Mount Zion. So, yes, that's why I think they will be they will see the, the inheritance of the saints and the promise of the covenant being fulfilled, vindicated and validated as they're dying, basically, as they're being destroyed for their wickedness and rebellion against Yeshua. All right, so, okay, it looks like we have a, a couple more questions. Um, what time is it, 10-5? Kingdom of Truth is asking, Micah 5-5, five, five, who are the seven shepherds and eight principal men? Thoughts? Um, that's that's going to be for a different episode. I appreciate the question, brother, but I'm going to have to, that's a little bit longer uh, go into Book of Enoch, and that's just, a, I have to go, That's uh, I don't have that prepared to give an adequate answer, so I'm going to have to make that for a separate night. Josh Pasek is asking, how can the son, Yahusha, marry the wife of the father? Isn't that against Torah? Well, Josh, um, we, here at Kingdom of Context, I've done actually an entire series on the bride and who the bride is. And remember, Yeshua is called the bridegroom. He's he's the one who marries the bride, right? And then we have in various places, and I, I explain all this. I'm going to give you the short summary version. This is why, guys, for everyone watching, this is why I'm always referencing these videos I've already made where I go over it in great depth because in this Q&A after these podcasts, I'm just giving you a very, very brief summary elevator pitch with some addresses to go look up for yourself. But if you want the full in-depth teaching, that's why I'm always dropping uh, a reference to these videos I've already took the time to prepare a long, full teaching on to help you understand. So real quick, Yeshua is the bridegroom. 
scripture tells us that the bride is right here. The bride is the city, Mount Zion, the bride. We are, Matthew 22, we're the guests at the wedding. We're under the authority of Yeshua, coming into covenant, inheriting the bride ourselves. And I'm going to go to that verse here in just a minute. But this, this Revelation 21, 9 and 10 directly tells you that the wife and bride of the Lamb is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Okay. What about what does that mean for us? So I'm trying to give you the parallel here. We got the Father. Let me, let me put this on full screen so you can see my little hand motions. <laughs> You've got the Father, right? And the Son who reigns in his stead on the earth. He's the Son is the bridegroom. Okay. We're he's our high the son who's the bridegroom is our high priest. We're the congregation, the ecclesia, underneath our leader, the high priest, the son of God. Okay, our Messiah, our Redeemer. The New Jerusalem is the house of God, the city of God. Revelation 3, uh, chapter uh, 10 through 12. It's Revelation 3, verses 10 through 12. So we don't marry Yeshua. We're Yeshua is the firstborn among many brethren. He's our leader. This is uh, Romans 8, 29. He is our leader. He's our high priest. We don't marry Yeshua. We enter into covenant with the inheritance that we're supposed to get from the covenant. So this is the part of the new covenant that we enter into covenant with the land of Zion after we get our new hearts and new bodies so that we'll never transgress the rules of the land of Zion and be kicked out again like Adam and Eve were in the garden. So I'm going to go to the scripture in Isaiah that tells you this point blank, okay? So a lot of people that... Um, have kind of cling to a, a, a teaching out there that that propagates this idea that we marry Yeshua. I, I hate to burst the bubble, my friend, but that is not in scripture. Okay. We he is the bridegroom. We're guests at the wedding. The bride is the city because it's all a metaphor for us entering into covenant with the land of our inheritance. Because as Yeshua explains in Matthew 22, 29, 30, at the resurrection, we do not marry nor are we given in marriage to physical people. And we definitely aren't going to marry a dude. Okay, so let's look in Matthew or Isaiah 62. All right, and I'm going to read these first five verses. And this explains what I'm talking about. Both our God, which is Messiah, our leader, our ruler, our king, our high priest, he's going to enter into covenant. He's going to, quote, unquote, marry the land of promise, which is Zion. And so are we. And I'm going to read the scriptures that directly tell you that. Verse one, it says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent for Jerusalem's sake. I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness. You see the language there where it's calling Zion with the female pronoun of her, her salvation, like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness, all the Kings, your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a Royal diadem in the hand of your God. Talk about the city. It's talking about the city. He's talking to the city. Actually, he says in verse four, it will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it be any longer be desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your Elohim, yes, Yeshua, your God, will rejoice over you. So this is, this is the promise of the covenant, the fulfillment of the covenant, where we, you guys, you remember Matthew 22, the marriage supper of the lamb? That's, that's he's the bridegroom. We're the, we're the guests at the wedding, right? We're the attendants. Um, who's given our robes of white, and 
We are entering into covenant, the marriage supper, the covenant supper of the lamb. He leads us into the land of inheritance as our leader. And we enter into covenant as Isaiah 62, five says with Zion. So hope that's a, a decent answer for you, brother. All right. So let's see here. I think. Kelly J is saying forgiveness of oneself. I've been able to forgive others, but struggle with myself. Couldn't fit it all in. <laughs> yes. It's there. Like I've said before, there's three people that we have to forgive in life, right? If we're holding anything against the father, we have to forgive him. If we're holding anything against someone else, we have to forgive them. If we are holding anything against ourselves, we have to forgive ourselves, right? We love yourself as you love your neighbor. So, and this is what, you know, if, if you're having unforgiveness towards yourself through, you know, deep pain or regret or whatever, or self-loathing, that will emotionally stunt you from enjoying your walk with Christ. And, um, and it, it, so it's something that, I mean, I went through that myself in my life, but, you know, from 2008 to 2011, and it got to the point where the father was teaching me about forgiveness. And I just had to, even though I didn't emotionally feel it, I was just speaking it with, in my prayers, you know, like, Father, I need your help in forgiveness towards other people and towards myself for certain things that had happened. And I, I don't feel forgiven. I don't feel like I want to forgive these other people either. <laughs> but I'm going to just keep praying this, that I do forgive them. And I'm going to keep asking you to help my feelings catch up to my words. You see what I'm saying? We don't live our, you know, we don't, we don't walk our life of faith according to our feelings. We walk our life of faith according to what we believe that the father, according to his word, what he wants to provide for us according to his promises. And forgiveness is something he wants to give us. Emotional healing, that is, you know, what's called a sound mind. He does want to give that to us, right? And he will drop the spirit in our heart to help us do that. We just have to be willing. And I was willing for probably two years before I felt it. So my mind was actively trying to walk in forgiveness towards others and toward myself for about two years before I started to feel it, if that makes any sense, right? So that's the best I, that's the best I have on that. And I hope to, I hope to encourage you. With that, I'm gonna take one more question, guys, and then we'll we'll call it a night. Everyone's awesome in the chat. Thanks for everyone keeping the fruit of the spirit. Um, thanks for the good questions, everyone. There's a lot of good questions in here tonight. And let me see here. See if I can find another quick question. Otherwise, guys, I appreciate you. We, we can uh, stop for the night. As always, these are such, so much fun. Uh, Wendy is asking, does Scripture say anything of the Jews ruling over us with the Noahide laws? They will establish these laws that consider us idolaters. Um, no, unless you consider the Revelation 13 verse I read earlier, where it says the, the beast is given authority over all the nations, tribes, and tongues, peoples of the earth, and including the saints. He's able to make war with the saints and overcome them. And guys, Zionism of today is waiting for the Antichrist. They, they're they not waiting for Yeshua. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So is that going to be their rhetoric as far as what they, you know, in however they're assimilated into this massive worldwide dominant kingdom of the beast for 42 months, as for, you know, in, in their vein, uh, will they consider that they will be able to enact and and enforce Noahide laws? Um, 
and and that's what leads to people being beheaded for Christ. And it kind of it's possible, but there's going to be so much other nonsense happening at the same time that may be that may not come to your door, but it may affect a lot of believers in in other parts of the world. So, yeah, but it's it's something to consider that this is this is why it says this takes perseverance and faith of the saints in Revelation 13, 14, right? Because it just explained to you that you will be overcome by the beast. If you're alive during that time, like that's it, it's been given to him for 42 months to overcome the saints and persecute them. And um, this is why you have people in revelation chapter six, verse nine through 11 say, these are people that have been beheaded and they're in Sheol and they're crying out to God. When will you avenge our blood? Because they've been unjustly murdered. So this is, there is a, there's a lot going on there and there's an appointed time when Yeshua returns. And that's what we just have to, like I said before, it takes us trusting the father that he's just, he will take care of all the loose ends. He will vindicate us and resurrect us to eternal life. That's the promise. And as according to, I can't remember the exact verse right now, but it's in the first book of Enoch where the righteous will watch according to my understanding of how this passage goes, the righteous will watch the beast and the false prophet be dragged before Yeshua and judged and thrown in the lake of fire. And we're all going to get to watch that. So the guy that possibly had you beheaded, you get to watch Yeshua deal with him face to face. Guys, if you've never read the book of first Enoch, you, you definitely should. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing book. All right, guys. Uh, appreciate everybody. Y'all are awesome. Hopefully you join me tomorrow night and uh, um, we'll do another uh, hopefully exciting episode here on uh, Kingdom Cast on Kingdom in Context. Thanks, guys. Y'all have a good night.